Hello and welcome to series three of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. It's my great pleasure to welcome Emma to speak to us on the Training for Influence podcast today. And I wonder, Emma, if you'd just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and and why you're here. Um, I will. Thank you so much for inviting me on. So, yes, my name's Emma Langton. I'm a leadership coach and wellbeing trainer, and I have been running my own business for the past 10 years with fingers crossed and a massive sigh of relief, actually, for my my own resilience in keeping going through this year. Because to be honest, I thought when COVID hit that I wasn't really sure that the business was going to survive, but it has. But without digressing too much, I bring with me about 20 years of corporate experience, both in training and communication kind of arenas at director level. And then I adopted two girls and it was in finding out about how to help them, who actually came with many more issues than we were first told. In finding out how to help them, I learned about the psychology and attachment and neuroscience type things about the way that we function and how we respond in certain situations. And there was just so many light bulb moments for me. It made perfect sense. And that was the catalyst, if you like, that made me retrain and start my own business. So I suppose when people say to me, you know, what experience do you bring? Well, I bring that corporate operational experience to things. And I also bring personal experience. And then obviously I bring all the training and knowledge that I have as well. And I've carried on training. So I've got NLP and even hypnotherapy and I'm trauma trained as well. And I'm an ILM7 trained for leadership and management. So there's a bit of a broad wealth of experience that I bring when I talk to individuals or organizations, whether that's for the coaching and well-being. Resilience and boundaries are probably two of my favorite topics that I love to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I can get that just from when we were just talking pre-podcast. It's really clear that you're passionate about this and you were saying that you're literally delivering training right up till Christmas because it, it's so important. These subjects are so important. And I love the way that when you give your introduction there, you talk about not only your qualifications, and you've got quite a few of them, you know, not only your qualifications, but also your operational experience on the ground, and also how that connects to being a parent and adopting your children as well, because actually emotional resilience is holistic. We can't partition it and we can't silo it. It is all interconnected, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And we bring in naturally you know no matter if I think about my corporate days you know when I was sat in offices when we used to go into offices when I sat in an office with I think we're going to touch on this a little bit but one of the jobs was with an incredibly difficult boss hugely difficult and how that impacted but not just how it impacted on the day-to-day stuff but how it impacted on personal life and then actually when we were adopting kids and we they send you on a training course parenting training course which you know regular parents don't get that have got their families through natural ways. So we did used to laugh a little bit about that, but we used to say then on the training course, you know, I've run board meetings, I've been the only female in, in meetings, I've done this and I've done that and I've dealt with complaints and I've done, I've done all this stuff. So actually, I'm sure I can handle it. 
And then you get something that this tiny, tiny, tiny little person's done and you're like, I'm not sure I can handle this. (laughs) (laughs) Tell with these really big, important people. And then there's this tiny little person and I'm like, I can't do it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting because... Not only is there such a, I guess, a realisation when you become a parent of exactly what you've said there, it's funny how each interconnect. Because if I've had a, I guess, a good morning with my children, as in they've got up, they've got ready, I've not had to shout too much at them to brush their teeth for the 400th time or, or whatever it is, and they've got out the door and I've got out the door and they've got off to school and then I've got off to work. Actually, that impacts my resilience. And it goes both ways, depending on how work's gone, will quite often depend how much patience I've got left at the end of the day. And neither of those are perfect, but we are people, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I had a client a couple of years ago who was in high level job and, you know, she was getting very stressed. Mental health, well-being is basically the kind of entirety of what I work with in order to help people perform better. But She was coming to me very highly stressed and her husband worked away. She had a very responsible job in in healthcare, actually. And she was struggling to get her child out to school, you know, and then the rush through traffic and one thing impacts another and impacts another. And it has that domino effect on your day, like you say. But, you know, obviously we were focusing on the areas that she was struggling with and the son couldn't get out to school and things. And I usually tell this when I'm talking about boundaries. I said to her, I think we need to look at some boundaries here so that you can get your morning routine to work really well for you in the best possible way. So that actually when you arrive at work, you are feeling, you know, like you've already achieved, actually. And she went, oh, oh, I don't want to be the guard on the state penitentiary. And I was like, oh, my God, in my head. I was obviously a face-to-face session with her and I thought, oh, my God, that's extreme. And it's really interesting what people think in their mindset, what sort of pictures they have and where their head goes when we think about putting boundaries in place or doing things that are going to affect your resilience and your mental well-being and impact on how it is that we're going to perform either just in a key area of our day or overall with something that's bigger and long-lasting. So even that needed a bit of a switch in the mindset and how we think about certain things and the way that we view certain situations, which is part of the When I do my resilience training, I usually say to people, what does it mean for you? And a lot of people talk about, you know, the bounce back and things. But one of the things that I say as well is it's about the adaptability to any situation. And it's not about giving in, you know, and letting somebody trample all over you type thing. But it's about the adaptability as well as the ability to be able to bounce back. And I needed with that person to help her to be adaptable, to enable her to get to work in a good frame of mind to see her through the day. And it was focusing on adaptability there and changing the mindset that that was hugely important. But, you know, it's not about pushing through everything or, you know, we're allowed to feel the feelings as well. I think that's important. I think you've just made a really good point there about the fact that emotional resilience means different, just the term in itself means different things for different people. But not only that, also different things at different stages of life as well. Because I certainly remember being new to working in a secure unit for young people who are either a risk themselves or risk to others. And I'm thinking about the term emotional resilience. And I think I went on a training course that kind of introduced that term to me. Back then, I viewed it with regards to how much can I cope with? Do you know, am I resilient against all of these stresses? Can I cope with the, the high pressure nature of this job? 
And can I cope with, I guess, the emotional elements? Because when you're working with 11 to 17 year olds, and I was only 22 at the time, so not really that huge difference. When you're working with 11 to 17 year olds who are experiencing really difficult emotions and have caused harm to other people or themselves, then actually at 22, you become quite emotionally connected. And it's about actually, is that healthy? Is that not healthy? And how do you operate within that? And I remember then that the term, as I said, emotional resilience literally to me meant how strong are you? Now, skip forward kind of 18 years and listening to what you're just saying now, Emma, the term doesn't mean that to me at all. And I guess one of the things that would be quite nice, actually, is I'll rewind slightly because I I usually ask this at the beginning of the podcast, but we just got chatting. So um, I'm going to rewind slightly and just say, when you talk about emotional resilience, what does it mean to you? And then when you explain it to your clients, because you just said there about how you helped your client recognize that adaptability is part of emotional resilience. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what I say generally is certainly for me, it is absolutely about adaptability. If I think about what I have experienced, I suppose, between a kind of highly stressful corporate environment and then adopting the girls and then learning about trauma and living with two other people's trauma in the house all the time and trying to navigate everyday life, if you like, it's about that ability to get through It's not just about get through the day, but it's about acceptance of what we can cope with, acceptance of what we can't cope with, recognition of things that we find difficult so that you can maintain some degree of positivity despite whatever adversity you deal with. So for me, particularly, I would often, when the kids were very little and things were really difficult, I would often get to the end of the day and go, I can't do this. But the resilience in me was, you know, a good night's sleep and taking care of myself a little bit meant that I could get up the next day and I could do it all over again. But I would frequently get to the end of the day and go, God, I don't know, I I can't do this. I don't know how much more I could do. But it's that. And that's that element of bounce back. But then also what we used to do was we would reflect, my husband and I, and after a particularly difficult day or a difficult incident or something like that, we'd kind of talk about it do some reflections, do some learning, and then go, how can we do that differently next time? So that's where the adaptability bit comes in. That's really interesting there, because you've given some fantastic examples that kind of cross over into your personal life that are really transferable into our professional life as well. I just want to go back to a couple of things, because you said you might get to the end of the day and think, actually, I can't do this again. Do you know, that's it. I'm at the end. I just can't do it again. And then you did some self-care, maybe had an early night, And then the next day you got up and carried on. Tell me a little bit more about that self-care. What is it for Emma that helps, I guess, refill your bucket? Yeah, exactly. And these are the things, obviously, that I focus on as well, either in my training or with my clients. And I'm sure you do as well, Tammy, because it's about knowing some of the awareness that we need as individuals. And even if you are managing a team, I suppose, it's about knowing not only what drains the bucket, so which bits are difficult, and then also what things restore our energy. So for me, it's very much downtime. For me, it is reading, sleeping, crawling under the duvet. I'm like the expert sleeper. Everybody just laughs at how much I can sleep and how well I can sleep. I can sleep sitting up in a chair. There's loads of pictures of me over the years just curled up 
in the armchair in our front room with the sun on me and I've just curled <laughs> up and gone to sleep in the your body knows your body knows what you need doesn't it yeah. sleep is my recovery swimming is another one so it's all very kind of quiet and let's get rid of the noise and things like that heat you know sunshine I love my holidays I love sunshine can get lost in a book nothing too deep and heavy just a good bit of, of rom-com type book and things like that but some of it will be exercise, turn myself out for a walk, go swimming and things as well. For my husband, he needs time with people. So he would go to the rugby. He would, you know, kind of have a good shout at the referee. He would have a good chat and a laugh with the lads, you know, or he would be, say, going for a cycle ride. The lads weren't necessarily doing a bike ride of how far do we get and what you know what's this big distance but they would you know tootle along at pretty good pace but having a good chin wag and kind of just mulling over bits and pieces and things like that it's interesting there um that actually you've just given examples of you and your husband who I'm assuming the way you're describing live together and bring up your children and you've just given examples of really quite significantly different ways of rebuilding your emotional resilience did it take a little bit of time to recognise that you needed different things or was that quite a natural? I kind of always knew, but it was something that I did that I, I suppose in my corporate days, it was something that I did that I didn't actually recognise that I was doing and the reasons, if you like, behind why I was doing it, if you like. I was just kind of, well, I'm shattered and I need to go to bed and I need to sleep type thing. I would have an afternoon nap, if you like, on a, on a weekend or something like that. I might get up and do stuff on a weekend and then go back to bed. And it was just a, well, I'm tired. It's been a busy week. And you can put other rational justifications, I suppose, around what I was doing. And then I began to recognize with some of my training about what am I doing to refresh? What am I doing to boost my energy levels? What am I doing to fill my bucket, as you talk about as well? Although I was already doing them, I had a bigger recognition of what I was doing and why I was doing it and why it was good for me, which then means when you know the stuff that helps, for me, certainly, we could plan it in. So if we knew we were going to have, there was particular things that were difficult, say, for the kids, even in a corporate environment and even in running my business, there are particular things, maybe, that are more difficult, you know, so say if I was doing a full day training session, or say if I'd, I'd had the board meeting, or say if I'd had the, the girls at some sort of assessment thing, I would know that all these things need all of my undivided attention, I need to be on it, I need to be focused, I'm interacting with people, whichever thing it is, what I would then do is what I would call sort of package around the day scaffold around the day. So I would make sure that I take other things out of the diary where possible. I have, say, quick and easy meals. I don't arrange something in the evening. Not that in COVID times, I don't think anybody's got anything arranged in the evening these days. But even going forward, it will be helpful for people when we are allowed out, as I keep saying. But, you know, not putting things in the evening and taking out some things that are difficult, even something like don't try and do a supermarket shop on the day that you've got a big board meeting or a big piece of training to deliver or, you know, something that the kids are going to find difficult. It was packaged around so that I had recovery time, if you like. And that's about the adapting to enable us to bounce back faster because it's not how much we empty our bucket or kind of get knocked down. It's about the bounce back faster with everything as well, I think. Yeah, 
as you were um, saying them, I was actually writing down a couple of your tips. <laughs> it's clear that this is something that you talk people through regularly and actually look from different perspectives about what will work. But I think what I heard there, which I really loved, and I don't think anybody said it yet on the podcast, is that actually it's about sometimes looking at your whole day or your whole week and just saying, well, actually, that is high pressured or that is difficult. Can I move something around? And sometimes we don't have the luxury of choice. Sometimes we can't do that. And it's about then leaning into our support networks where we can. And I know you talked about you and your husband debriefing and reflecting and chatting together about what's worked well and what hasn't. If we can't move things or we don't have that recognition of what is a stressful situation, we can use your other tip there about going into those support networks as well. But what about if you're at work and something is continually stressful or you don't have those support networks? Because some people don't have those networks at home or at work, to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when when we feel like the pressure at work is relentless, like it was with this really difficult boss. I mean, this boss, I used to say, I'm sure he goes home at night and thinks, how can I be really difficult and find something to annoy Emma with the next day? And he had an expectation as well that we were in the office before him and that we left after him. And he was so particular about attention to detail and things, but he was also a bit of a bully as well. And that was a kind of relentless, and I didn't apply for this job. I applied for a different job, but then I was moved into this job to do a maternity cover. So it was kind of, I was already there and I was contracted and I kind of almost didn't have a choice really. And the pressure and the difficulty there just with, you know, being spoken to, the lack of respect, the expectation, all of that stuff was really difficult. And humour was hugely important. I have... (laughs) discovered I've got a bit of a wacky kind of sense of humor and I can be quite a bit sarcastic and the way that I think about some of the some of the things that would happen would be some of the things that would see me through this so trying to make sure that you keep humor in your day or in your week or even you know reading books that are funny watching some of the comedies that are funny so that you do get times when you do have a laugh because when we laugh it releases feel-good chemicals basically so that's hugely important as well you know obviously there was a lot of situations with the kids there was a lot of things with this boss that were just not funny and it was very serious so it wasn't particularly about laughing at that but it was finding humor in different areas of your life that could just lift your mood and help you to feel better but support networks, when I talk to people about support networks, I sometimes say, do you know what? If you don't have any particular support, have a look at where you can create some of that support. No, we might not have it with co-workers. We might not have it because we're isolated and we're not seeing family and we might not have it with community either because we're not allowed to go out and we're supposed to be distancing at these times. We're not seeing friends. We're not seeing managers as much to be able to talk to all those people. And those are kind of some of the regular ones that I would put as a kind of list of support with people, definitely. Support can come, you know, from some of your spiritual connections, you know, maybe it's coming from church and beliefs and things like that. Maybe a bit like my husband, his church, if you like, his religion, we used to kind of joke about was from sport. So even if he's sitting down and shouting at the telly, as he has done through lockdown, obviously, we're not allowed to go and see live sport. And another one of our friends is managing to keep connections with his church and things like that. So sometimes your support network isn't necessarily where you 
go and talk to the people about the work. Or it's not necessarily people where you go, it's been the hardest week I could ever imagine. I don't know how I'm going to get through any more of it. I don't know how I'm going to keep going a bit like I was saying. But it is about places or people or things that help you to feel uplifted or offloaded in a bit of a different way. Certainly it is for me. When we I guess as well, some of that is conscious and some of that is unconscious as well, because I know that in difficult times, I gravitate towards people that make me feel better and that are positive and surround me with that positivity. And I am very fortunate that I've got wonderful people around me. But I know we can see between us now when one of us is dipping, the others are there to pick them back up. And I don't think initially any of us, I guess, became friends and colleagues and such like with this in mind. But you build relationships in that way. And sometimes a good team, whether that's the team that you're working with every day or whether that's the people that you're connecting with over networking or kind of working partnership with, a good team is absolutely, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it, for our own ability to keep going, to take that next step. Absolutely, without a doubt. With this boss, so I was managing the team there and it was that that saw us through. The office that we worked in, there was a pub. It was sort of just a little bit around the corner, but we used to call it the downstairs meeting room. And we regularly, I know we can't do any of this right now, but it gives a perfect example. And we used to say, so should we pick this up in the downstairs meeting room? So often a Friday night, obviously it was always gone six o'clock, usually more like seven o'clock Friday night. And should we pick this up in the downstairs meeting room? And what we meant was we were off to the pub and we would carry on the discussion, the reflection, the learning, whatever, in the so-called downstairs meeting room, aka the pub. And so that we were having some of those social interactions and some of the chat and some of the support and the whinge and the moan and the offload. Yeah. And, oh my God, can you believe that that happened today? But that still in the, oh my God, can you believe that that happened? Gave us the reflection time for, you know, what can we do differently? We need to remember that in case it comes up again and those sorts of things. And even if it was done over a couple of pints and probably no food, not very healthy, I know. We pulled together as a team, despite the situation that we're in and the challenges that we were facing, if you see what I mean. And so I think that's really interesting because people working on the front line with people in either social care, criminal justice, charities, during COVID and prior to COVID as well, the sectors have been under a lot of pressure and actually caseloads are increasing and expectations of frontline workers are increasing. And what I've seen, and it really is credit to the people on the front line, is the fact that despite the austerity measures, despite the pressure, despite the political landscape, they're doing exactly what you're talking about now, pulling together and making kind of this collective support network where actually they're focusing on their passion, their day job, the change that they're trying to make and supporting each other in that way. And it's a little bit like a a subtle army, if that makes sense. You know, people do connect and have empathy with each other. And that builds all of us, gives us strength to continue. I guess what's really important in that, though, is that, yes, let's take that strength and continue. But how do we then recognize when actually we need to withdraw for our own sake? You know, it comes to a point and you've you've alluded to it a couple of times where you've been at that crisis point And how do I continue? At some point, we we need to put ourselves first and, and step back or step away for a period of time. 
what do you say to your clients or can you reflect on, I guess, a situation where, where you've needed to do that to rebuild so that you've then got that strength to continue? It's making sure that you catch yourself before you fall. And that's about your own self-awareness and your own, you know, that ability to be able to recognize when, you know, your bucket is full, so to speak, or when you are getting up each day and kind of being constantly tired and struggling to get through each day. Even it might be as simple as booking some holiday and I know loads of people have not booked holiday. You know, as you said, this is coming out over Christmas. I am advocating that people do make sure that they take a proper break and put in something that they want to do, regardless of what everybody else in the family wants to do or everybody else that they live with. Each individual has got something that they specifically want to do within that. Because, you know, burnout is a big problem. I can remember one time with the kids, there was two consecutive years. I never thought that I was close to burnout until I reflected. But there was two years on the trot where I picked up in the summertime some incredible bug that just flawed me. The first year it happened and I kind of just thought it was just a hideous bug. It flawed me for a week. I was in bed. I couldn't lift my head off the pillow. You know, this bug was quite hideous. The second year that it happened, afterwards, I was a bit like, right, hang on a minute. When I'm getting a bug, which is not very often, I'm generally reasonably healthy, but when I'm getting one, it's flooring me. So what's going on and what can I do to prevent that? Interestingly, my daughter had come up to me at the time when I was laid in bed and couldn't lift my head off the pillow. Dad was taking her to school and she was like, mum, can I wear these shoes to school? And I couldn't lift my head off the pillow. And I just went, yes, darling, that's fine. I had no idea what they looked like. And she went, no, she went in party shoes. I was going to say, I hope they were really sparkly shoes. They were proper sparkly shoes, Tammy. They were super sparkly. (laughs) Complete party shoes. Because I was sort of the kids that had so many problems, I was well known at school. And so when dad had dropped them off and, you know, one of them needed to be handed to a teacher so that there was a, I was an adult connection type thing there. And when they recognized that dad was handing child over and she was in party shoes and they went, um, is mum not well? <laughs> Apparently. And they just went, oh, no, no, she's got some terrible bugs. She can't get out of bed. And they went, oh. And they never said a word. <laughs> yeah, but I love the fact that the school noticed that immediately. Do you know, I've yeah. had the same where my um, children, because I have girls too, and when they've turned up and their hair's been a mess, and it's like, where's mum today? Yeah. <laughs> oh, early meeting somewhere, or mum's not well, or, or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting what people notice, isn't it? However, it was off the back of that, you know, all right, my daughter's gone to school in a party shoes. Is that the catalyst that makes me think I need to do even more to look after myself, even though I thought I was doing enough? Although it creates a funny story, sometimes there's something there that goes, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And that's when I began to do some more learning, I suppose, and began to do even a bit more on things like nutrition and looking at things like adrenal glands and how stress affects us even deeper on ways that we don't know. Because don't, let's forget, I'd spent 20 years in this corporate environment where it was busy, 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 and we were on the go all the time. But what I wasn't recognizing as well, I suppose, was the effect of living with trauma on us as individuals and how that can impact. And even if it's that you're dealing with traumatic cases or you're dealing with difficult cases or you're living with difficult people or whatever it is, like you say, with your social care and your criminal justice, you're almost absorbing other people's stuff, as I always use the word stuff. Uh, <laughs> you're absorbing other people's kind of feelings, emotions. It's like it's in the air, the atmosphere. You know when we say, oh, you could cut the atmosphere with a knife? 
Absolutely. You know, it's the transference. It's people's stuff, the feelings, the emotions, the trauma that's in the air. And then we start to absorb it. And then that's when I began to learn much more about that and look at how you can look after yourself with that. And that's, again, when you go back to things that are happening on the inside of us that we don't really realize, but we need to make sure that we're not eating complete junk food. We're not just reaching, you know, for sugar and rubbish and fast food and look after ourselves on the inside so that the work that we're doing on the outside all kind of marries up and works together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes we'll go for comfort and actually that doesn't necessarily help us to be able to, I guess, be in the best place and be in the strongest place. But I do think it's a balance because I know certainly after a really tricky day, a hot bath, some chocolate and a glass of wine is exactly what I need. But if I get to day seven or eight and I'm still needing the same thing a few days in a row, that's when I go, hang on a minute, this isn't a treat anymore. This isn't healthy. This isn't a one off. Do you know, it is recognizing those patterns, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's with the awareness of yourself and, you know, noticing what's happening with you, noticing what's going on with your surroundings, even if it's just your recycle bin looks fuller than it usually does. (laughs) Or your neighbor's one does. So go check whether they're okay. (laughs) Check if they're all right. Right there, sparkly shoes and unbrushed hair. It is. It's spotting those things, and and as much as we laugh about it, it is spotting some of the little things that can be kind of a bit of a flag or a clue to us that go, oh, hang on a minute, you know, or you've poured that glass of wine and then you've gone, oh, that's gone down well. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Or oh, I've already got one poured. (laughs) What's happened there? Do you know? I think as well, certainly for me, when I'm starting to struggle, I, over the years, a little bit like you've talked about here, my self-awareness has grown and I can see when I'm getting to the stage where I need to take some time for myself. And I think we all have different working patterns and my working pattern is very much full on 100 miles an hour and then I need to stop for a period of time. And so you'll you'll know, Emma, that I worked really full on at the beginning of lockdown, kind of literally 18 hour days to save the business, to turn things around, to convert to live online, make sure we're meeting the methodology, all of those type of things. And I was on the go. My brain was on the go continually, just day after day after day after day. Come to July, I bought a camper van and me and the children disappeared for seven weeks in the camper van because I knew that I was just about to crash and burn. And I needed at that point, it was either prioritize myself or see the impact that that has on other people that I'm connected to as well. There's an element of personal responsibility, but also there's that collective responsibility as well. And I can recognize that I'm running headfirst. Like we've had a brilliant few months with the um, publication of the book and then the launch of the train the trainer qualification and things have just busier and more exciting than they've ever been. I can honestly say that I'm counting down to Tuesday when I'm taking some time because I'm, again, I know that I'm just about at my personal threshold, but jump back 10, 15 years. Actually, it was quite often my colleagues, my friends, or actually I've been lucky to have some wonderful managers that have gone, oh, Tammy, is everything all right? Because they've started to notice things. And I do think there's a little bit of a shift, isn't there, between your own recognition and your own understanding and then what you do with that information as well? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things that I talk to a lot of people about when I'm doing, I do a mental health in the workplace for managers so that they can spot, just like we've said and like you've said there, 
what they can do to spot their early signs with their staff and also, you know, what they can do to help, the way that you can have conversations so that you can get the best out of people rather than going, are you okay? And we do that British stiff upper lip of, I'm fine. Thing. <laughs> and so you can ask the questions in different ways, you can approach things in different ways and you can open up these conversations. But, you know, I mean, one of the other things as well that I also say to people an awful lot is to pick your battles. Because sometimes we try and push, 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 push and get things done in an environment where we're pushing against a door that's never going to open. You know, or we're trying to get through red tape that's never going to change and never going to get cut. And obviously, you know, I, in the early days, tried to battle through certain social care red tape, educational red tape as well, I suppose. And people that are listening, you know, from criminal justice as well, they will know too that sometimes if you're pushing against stuff that's too big, for us as an, an individual or even as an organization, you know, like the pandemic, there were certain things that we can do that were in our element of control, like, you know, changing the your training and me switching up and doing much more focus in the online training rather than the in the organizational workplace things. You know, we both did that and, you know, sitting for hours writing training where I used to just stand in a room and wave my arms and do, do interactions <laughs> and things. So some of it is within our control, but the areas that are not in our control is absolutely picky battles so that you're not pushing against stuff and making yourself even more tired when actually you're absolutely not going to get anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I think for me, that's been a huge lesson in my life that as I've gone through my life, I've recognized that a little bit more because I, I truly believe that one person can absolutely make change in the world. And there's, well, there's thousands, if not millions of examples. And certainly one person can make change in people's worlds that they directly influence. But my kind of personal mission for a lot of very personal reasons is about interrupting that generational cycle of abuse wherever possible. Yeah. And I spent 20 years working within sectors on the front line, but then graduating and moving into strategic positions, really working to that mission. And it's interesting because as much as I still do that, and I will always do that, I don't think I'll ever stop championing, whether that's at parliamentary level or wherever it is, I won't ever stop doing that. The whole reason that the methodology training for influence exists is for exactly what you're saying, Emma. I feel so strongly that we need to invest better in frontline practitioners because they're the ones in the right place to be able to help the most vulnerable and complex transform their lives. That for years, I was absolutely advocating and pushing against that brick wall, really, about money to be invested in people on the front line to be able to ensure that they have their emotional resilience built, that they are emotionally well, that they have the right values and understanding for working with people on the front line. And although I think I will always champion that cause, the entire reason we developed the methodology was so that in mandatory training that frontline professionals have to go on, we've now inserted that golden thread of that values-based decision-making, that emotional resilience. And so even if their local authority or their police area or their charity doesn't see or recognize the importance of maintaining emotional resilience and positive mental well-being and having the right values for the people that you're supporting and working with, if the organization that they work for or the sector they work for isn't recognizing that, we know now that if they go on training that is delivered using our methodology, they're getting that little drip, drip, drip effect of having that influence. And it's funny because when I talk about the methodology as a creative solution, people kind of sit back a little bit and go, oh, well, I thought people on the front line would be getting that anyway. 
And you and I know, some do, don't get me wrong, there is some absolutely phenomenal organisations out there that really recognise that people are their best resource and people change people. And so there are absolutely some brilliant organisations out there and there's some brilliant silos out there. But unfortunately, given some of the examples that you're sharing now and we've heard on other podcasts, that isn't consistent across the country. So it is about doing exactly what you've said there about sometimes picking your battles. I could have or we could have stayed banging on those doors and not getting much further. Or what we did do was look for a creative way of getting through those doors. So so sometimes you, you have to make those decisions and they're hard because actually I needed to swallow a bit of my not necessarily pride, but certainly um frustration I had to swallow a bit of that because from my perspective why on earth aren't people recognizing that this is one of the most important things I don't feel like I should have to persuade anybody I feel like it's really obvious (laughs) but it is but it's really obvious to me and it's clearly really obvious to you but actually within the sectors there's so many different pressures from different directions that we to an extent we need to work within that whilst also championing for change I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I could talk to you all day about this. And I spent some time, you know, trying to influence different organisations and different local authorities. Actually, I did spend a piece of time working with a local authority on influencing the support that was there for adopted children and the knowledge that was there for adopted children. And we got so far with it, but not quite as far as I would have liked. But some of it as well was very much dependent on who was leading where and whether they saw the value in this as well. And very much about whether leaders see the value in these kind of things, which is what I come across in organisations now. It's what I saw all the way through my corporate experience as well. When we can get the leaders to see the value. So then sometimes it's about actually we need to find out how they think and what they think is valuable. And so then if it is about keeping people well at work and reducing absenteeism, then that's what we talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. About then that we are talking about, you know, the bottom line then that's what we talk about to them about how, you know, well-being and resilience will impact that. If it's about the money in the pot, then we talk about the return on investment, et cetera. And sometimes it's about what conversations can we have, but it's not necessarily from our perspective. It's seeing it from somebody else's perspective, standing in their shoes and then talking to that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Manner that is often something that I end up helping people to be able to go away and have that conversation, if you like, or write a proposal that then helps them with that as well. That's such an important piece of work, Emma, and I hope lots of people come and talk to you about that specifically, because I think that when we can kind of step into somebody's shoes or recognise their frame of reference, we can absolutely use that information to not only kind of meet their needs, but also to be able to drive forward our own And if we're talking about managers, you talked earlier about how you do some work with managers that help them to recognize the needs of their team. But it's also about them role modeling to their team, looking after themselves. But it's also there's an element within the team of actually recognizing what your manager is aiming for as well. And actually, if you have that balance then that connectivity can make a huge difference because the overall outcome might be different for individual people. But actually, collectively, what we want is people who are mentally well, 
enjoying their jobs, doing their jobs to the best of their ability, and then absolutely being able to transform lives, not only on the front line within their work, but also at home in their personal lives as well and their, their own life as well. Yeah, completely and totally. The figures are that businesses that invest in like mental health type interventions like stress management, resilience and things like that report on average, I think it's £4.20 return for every pound spent. So they get four times as much. And that's just on the monetary value. But what about, you know, returning people? January is a massive time for people going, I'm not going through another year like that. So I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to look for another job. And then you've got Blue Monday and all of that stuff. So right now is a prime time for individuals and organizations to begin to look at all of that emotional resilience, their mental well-being and investing in their people, really. So and particularly we'll see in, what 2021 brings. Well, I was going to say, particularly in the context that we're in at the moment, you know, I think it's needed now more than ever, really. So, um, Emma, would you mind just telling our listeners how they could find out more about you? Because I think some might listen to this podcast and think, you know, actually, I'd just like to find out a little bit more about what Emma does and whether she can help us. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a website, which is emmalangton.com. And I also have a podcast called Lessons for Leaders, which focuses on leadership and well-being in the workplace and how we can support that. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter, which is at M. Langton Coach. Fantastic. And you'll be, this podcast will be on our website with the show notes and we'll put all of that in the show notes as well. So people can get hold of you and hopefully come to you for a little bit of support if they need it from this perspective as well. Fantastic. Emma, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I feel like we could just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> I wonder if you've got any kind of, I guess, final words or top tips that you'd like to leave the listeners with about looking after themselves and their emotional resilience. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously to kids every day is a school day, which sounds that I don't want to be patronising. But the things that you do, what suits you and what you need is going to change over time. So what suited you when you were, when certainly when I was in my 20s, is not suiting me now in my 50th year of life. So things will change and it's okay. And again, it's coming back to that adaptability. It's not just about adaptability of your own resilience, but it's being adaptable again with what works for you, what you need, and actually what doesn't work for you and what you don't need. So keep having a little look at it now and then, reflect, review, and don't be afraid to change things. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect end there. Um, don't be afraid to change things. In a, in a world where everything is changing around us, you know, pick our battles, recognize what we can influence, and please do just look after yourself because you need to be in the best position you can be to be able to help yourself, help your family, and help other people. Absolutely. Thanks, Emma. Thank you, Tammy. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, All the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. It makes all the difference.